For any of you guys that don't know, um, me and my mom had been separated for quite some time because she was incarcerated. And when she was incarcerated, I was adopted. Well, during the time where she was gone, I gained like a lot of hate. Like, why would you do the things you did? And I would go into a different family like I wanted us. Um, ugh, this is hard too. <laughs> um, during all that, I gained a lot of anger because as I was younger, I was getting abused like physically, mentally. Like the people were telling me, this is what you wanted. So it's gonna be given to you. Or I would used to get locked in a room or I'd come home and she'd close the door. She didn't want to see me and she said, just go do what you do. It's what you're meant to do. Or she said, or I got comments because my mom was incarcerated. You're going to be just like your mom. Like, no. So over time, I began to hate my, like, my mom. And that's something I've been like working on. I don't hate her as a person, but the things that were told to me, it was like, I hate that image of you. Like, I'm not going to become that. So... I somewhat did later on, but like in my eyes. Um, I really did not attend school a lot. Um, I used to fight with my guardian, like literally fist fight, where the cops would like, have to come out and it'd be like a big situation. I remember this one time I didn't want to go to school and me and my guardian fought to the point where I was literally, it's kind of embarrassing, but I was butt naked. And my grandma and the principal were very close because the principal came to this, my house and fought with me while I was butt naked, got me dressed, and took me to school. I was like, okay, school must be important if you're gonna see me in my booty to be taking me to school. <laughs> so I was like, okay. Um, but, and also, when I was separated from my mom, I was separated from my brother. And if you ever hear, or you see my posts, I call him my baby because he was the only family I had when my mom was incarcerated. And unfortunately, we're still separated, but something that we've really been working on. Um, but then, luckily, this past year, um, even though it was a bad situation, God gave me to my mom. So, and now it's like we live in a family. I have three new brothers. It's kind of hard to get used to, but. <laughs> and um, when I first got here, I was in a big depression stage. I was like, I just left the family that I thought I loved, and then I realized that they were treating me so dirty, like I wasn't supposed to be there. And so I was quiet for a few months, and then school started. Which same school Dominic went to was bored. First year of the year, it's not, probably not a good school to go to if you have a bad past or whatever. Um, I got caught up in some stuff. I don't know how many times my mom got calls from the school saying there's an altercation with this group of girls in Kima, like you need to come. I remember one time there was an altercation, and I had to stay till six because. As the principal called it, she did this Michael Jackson move where she wanted to come up and fight. So I was like, okay. But, and then we were attending. I had been attending about three church. I mean, three years at this church. And it was like always, I was looking around. We used to sit in back. And all you guys would be speaking in tongues. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? Like, you guys are weird. <laughs> just stop. And I was like, this is not what I'm going to just sit down. I was so like, uh, Okay. But then we stopped coming for a while, and I did notice that even though I did not participate in raising my hands or really worshiping, um, it did make a difference. And the, month, the few months that I did not come here, I spiraled down crazy. Like, there's, I actually spiraled down to where um, 
I was very upset with myself. Um, there on October 2nd of last year, uh, I was at school and I had some pills and uh, something happened that made me get set off. And everything from my past and my adopted family, I never really full on acted on it, so it was all inside. And on October 2nd, I went to commit suicide and I had two friends. One's name is Bean. It's kind of funny if you see her, it's like she's the same color. So, um, And the other one was Brittany. Brittany and me do not talk right now because something that happened, but Dominic um, helped me give lead her to salvation after something had happened. It was just very good. Um, when that, but when I had that suicide thing, I did not really come. And then when I, um, and then everything was happening, and then there was winter camp. This week, right before winter camp, it was youth night. The same day, I had an altercation with Brittany, and she came up, and it was like, let's go. I was not, I was really not trying to do that, to be honest. I was just like, you're doing the most. Is there anything else you want to say? So she was getting mad. It was kind of funny. But, um, because I was just like, okay, you want to fight? I'm staying here. Let's see what else you got. Um, so that same Wednesday, um, we decided, I actually got the idea from Dominic. He's been a big impact in my life. I probably mentioned him like 20 times if you ever hear me talk. Um, that I was going to do home studies and go to uh, Crescent View. And so... That Wednesday, also, this guy is a big freaking part because here he is again. After we were done talking about our Timothy training and everything, he was like, Kima, you going to go to wedding camp? I was like, no. And Alyssa had also asked me, she's like, are you going to go? Like, it's going to be fun. Like, it would be good if you go. It's like, I don't want to. Like, and I was, all in, I was all in the stage where I'm getting all these altercations with girls. I can act like this. I'm all tough. Like, don't, I'm not going to go to no winter camp. Got in the car. Guess what happened? Mom, let's go to winter camp. Like, I really want to go. They're saying it's going to be fun. But then I was like, oh, the money. And then guess what this woman did? Everything that everything was going on. She gave me $200 in an envelope. She wasn't even at home when I went and left for winter camp. And it was literally with me. So, she, like, I was looking at it like, after everything I'm doing, you're going to give me $200 that I can just, you're not even here. What do I, I can go out and do it. So I was like, she's trusting me. So I acted on it. I went to winter camp. Cried my heart out. If you ever saw it the first night, it was so freaking ugly that, like, I looked ugly. Just, I hope there's not photos of it because it's pretty bad. But um, there was a, um, I don't know if any of you, she might not want me to say it, but it's part of my testimony, so I'm going to say it anyways. Um, my mom had this boyfriend, and there was an altercation with them that I was witness to, and I did not know it was a big thing that was holding on to me. And... I kept it in. I was like, oh, I forgive him. I'm just the type that forgives everyone. You're going to hit me? I forgive you. But this was my mom. And like I said, I thought I hated my mom. But when it happened, I was like, you're the only one I have left. Even when you were in jail, every letter I got, it was every day. It was my birthday. I got 10 cards. Like, you're literally the one I've always had. I just never acted on it. And when I arrived at winter camp, Cherish, she was there. Every, it seems like every time I go up to the altar, she's there praying for me. Um, but it's good because I always end up crying and get closer to God. So that night, I did not know why I went up there. But they asked for an altar call, and I went up there, and I was just crying so bad. And I said, I really don't know why I'm up here. Like, I don't. And then Cherish was asking me, and she's praying over me, and she's like, is there anything you need prayer for? I was listening all these other little things that 
was not really a big part of my life. And then I mentioned that, and that's, nose was runny, face was messed up, I had makeup on, I was cute for one account. I mean, there's people I did not know there, and I was like, I'm going to look good, you guys. I was like, yes. Um, but no, not no more. Um, and so after that, I was, like I said, I had pills that went suicide attempt. That was kind of my go-to pain relievers. It says it in the title, what I was looking for, pain relievers. Relieve the pain that I'm holding in. Could have gone to God, and it would have been gone two seconds, but no. Um, but I went to camp. I received so much peace. Like, you don't know how happy I was. Like, I went home. I was like, you don't know how good I feel right now. Like, my shoulder, it literally felt like people had took stuff off my shoulders. Like, I was walking around in a cloud. I was so happy. And now, you guys see me every Sunday. You see me every Wednesday praying. I got my Timothy training done. Oh, guess what happened today? I was like, I was like, a test. Oh, you know, I failed all last semester. Now I got straight A's. I was like, whoop, whoop. Right? So I got my, I got life going here, family, which is also feel comfortable because I'm really not that scared to talk in front of you guys right now. Like, I am just telling you, I was trying to be cute for winter camp. So, um, yeah, I, I really feel like. God changed my life, and that this is player I'm gonna stay. Like, Amen. gonna see me grow more. So, yeah. Hello, everybody. So, I'm gonna try to take my time today because I'm very nervous, and you guys probably know when I'm nervous. I talk very fast. So I'm going to slow down. So I titled this, this teaching lesson, whatever you want to call it, it's called All or Nothing. All or Nothing. So we're going to be in Luke 14, verses 25 through 35, if you want to go there. That is a parable, and it's called The Cost of Being a Disciple. All right, so let me know when y'all are there. I'm going to go ahead and get started. Luke 14, verses 25 through 35. All right, I'm going to go ahead and start reading now. So I'm reading in the NLT. So it says, a large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, if you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money, and then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started the building and couldn't afford to finish it. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him? And if he can't, he will send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. So you cannot become my disciple without giving everything you own. Salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses flavor, how do you make it salty again? Flavorless salt is good neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown away. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. So 
when I read that passage, I just started thinking of some questions, like things that stuck out to me. So I have like three questions and then a couple other topics that I want to talk about throughout this parable. So the first thing that really stuck out to me, like I literally read this like 10 times because I thought this was a typo. Like I was convinced I had the only Bible with a typo in it where Jesus uh, was talking about hating everybody else in comparison. So the first question I want to talk about is what did Jesus mean when he talks about hating uh, your parents, your friends, even your own life? Now, for those of you that, that understand the English language, you know that hate is definitely not a neutral word. It is very strong. When somebody says they hate somebody, they hate a politician. I hear that one a lot. You hate blah, blah, blah. They, that means they have very strong feelings about something. And by using the word hate in this description, I think Jesus was trying to highlight the severity of the cost of becoming one of his disciples. Now, Jesus isn't literally talking about you have to like hate your parents, like actually hate them. What Jesus is saying is that compared to the love that you have for him, the commitment that you have to being a disciple, your other relationships need to seem like nothing. They need to seem like they're almost non-existent. And I think about how much I love my mom, my dad, my brothers. I love them. I would kill for them. And to think that compared to how much I love Jesus, that the way I love them needs to be nothing, that's mind-blowing. That in and of itself should show you becoming a disciple of Jesus, truly following after him, is not something to be taken lightly. Now, just to clarify, like I said, Jesus isn't literally saying hate people. Go out and just, just be a hater. Just hate 24-7. No, to clarify, Jesus is not saying disrespect your family or friends or yourself. Our responsibilities to our family remain the same, but following Jesus is always the number one priority, even when it's difficult. To, to kind of apply it to my own life, I'll talk about my relationship with my dad. I love my dad so much, but those of you that know me personally, you know he's not the most compassionate person Uh, He's not the most understanding person. So whenever my brother and I tell him, like, we want to pursue, to some degree, a career in ministry, my brother, Victor, he's currently going to California Baptist University. He's trying to become a head pastor. And me, I want to have my life always in some capacity in youth ministry for the near future. And my mom's always like, great, awesome, good job, son. My dad's always like, that's a waste of time. Why would you do that? There's no money in that. What are you doing? And the thing is, I love my father, but I can't let what his opinion of me following Christ, I can't let his opinion affect how I follow Christ. I love my dad, but my priority with Jesus is above my relationship with my earthly father. So if he's going to interfere with the calling that God has on my life, I have to say, dad, I love you, but I'm not going to listen to what you're saying right now. So that's the first point when Jesus is talking about hate. He's not literally saying hate people. But he is saying that your love for him, your relationship with him, should be at a point where your other relationships appear like they're hateful, like they're nothing. All right, so the second point. What does it mean to carry your own cross? Now, this is a phrase that I guarantee you everybody in here has heard at some point in time. Oh, I'm struggling right now, Lord. I promise I just want to carry my cross. Oh, Brother Joe is struggling. Oh, Brother Joe, just carry your cross. And you know what? It's an amazing statement, but I don't think people realize the severity of that. It is a declaration. When you say, I'm going to carry my cross, that is a declaration. It's not just something that you say, oh, it's just a cliche, like, I'm going to pray for you, and you 
pray for them. Don't just say, oh, I'm going to pray for you when I'm at home. You pray for them. Like when you say, Lord, I'm going to carry my cross, you need to understand what that means. So what does it mean to carry your cross? From what I understand, from doing some, some, some praying, from doing some research, reading commentaries, things like that, carrying your own cross is basically to accept the death of your own self-directed life. Giving up your desires, your wants, your needs, your whatever. You die to yourself. You say, I'm giving you everything, God. You're not picking and choosing, though. When you carry your cross, it is a complete declaration to give your entirety to Christ. It's not, Lord, I'm going to pick up my cross, but I'm going to keep this thing I'm struggling with. I'm not giving that to you yet. When you carry your cross, it is a declaration to die completely to yourself. But in addition to dying to yourself, when you carry your cross, that is also a pledge that you make with Christ that you will deal with whatever persecution following him results you to, leads you to. So if it leads to you being uh, persecuted by the world, physically, emotionally, whatever, when you carry your cross, you're agreeing to take that on. So you may say, Lord, I'm going to give myself up to you, but the first time somebody says something to me negative, I'm going to walk away. No, when you carry your cross, when you want to become a true disciple of Christ, you give everything. You are willing to take on anything for Christ. So the next time that you say you're going to carry your cross, realize how serious of a declaration that is. It's not just something that you say because it's a cliche or it's a nice thing to say. Understand that that is a declaration that you are making, that you are declaring that you want to be a complete disciple, a true disciple of Christ. So you got to be all or nothing title of my message here, see? All or nothing. You got to be all in or you got to be all out. Jesus says himself, if you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out. You can't be that carnal man that I'm a Christian, but I'm always going to be in the milk because there's something in my flesh that I'm struggling with that I can't put to the side. I'm just always going to be in the middle. Be all in or be all out. I'm sure God would appreciate that a lot more than you pretending to be in the middle. Sometimes I'm there, God, but sometimes I want to do my own thing. So be all in or be all out. Carry your cross or don't carry it. The third point, what are the potential consequences of not counting the cost before building something or before going to war? How does this illustration apply to our walk with Christ? So to go back to what it says in Luke 14, the passage I read, in the parable, the builder did not finish the building because he didn't properly figure the cost resulting in him being ridiculed by those around him. The builder was just so excited to start building, they didn't see the long-term goal, and they only got the foundation done. They didn't think about what it was going to cost to get the entire building done. They just said, oh, I'm so excited to start building, and the foundation's done, and crap, I'm out of money. The king, the king that was going to go to war, he didn't just say, let's go into this, let's get to work. He said, wait a second, let me see, let me talk to my council." I have 10,000 soldiers, they have 20,000 soldiers. How is this going to play out for me? Can I win? Will I lose? Hmm, probably not. Let me start thinking about making a peace treaty. So there were some, they had to evaluate the strategic cost of going to war. So how does this relate to us and our walk with Christ? We have to think about our own personal costs. What, what do we have to give up before we can truly follow Christ? Now, finances are definitely one. If you're going to be truly committed to following Christ, you have to realize that at that point, your money is no longer your money. That's God's money. And that's something that this, to this day, I still struggle with it. I'm a college student. You guys know what that's like if you've been to college. That $20 at the end of the month, that's the hardest to let go. But 
you have to think that that money is no longer yours. You have to be committed to paying that cost. In addition to there being financial costs, another cost of following Christ, being a true disciple, is time. You have to be willing to give up your time. Ask Dominic. This guy, two weeks ago, went out to El Dorado Park and was playing basketball for four hours. He comes in here with his shaking hands, and he's like, I'm just so tired from playing basketball. But that was time he had to give up. He could have used that time to go home and play video games. But he used that time fostering a relationship with kids he didn't know in his ministry. He gave up that time. That was a cost that he was willing to pay. To get a little bit more extreme, some costs that you may have to pay by being a disciple of Christ— it may result to you being separated from those that you love for a period of time. If God calls you to the mission field, if he calls you away for six months, a year, a decade, whatever, are you willing to pay that cost? Are you going to say, no, Lord, I can't do it. I can't leave my job. I can't leave my family. Are you willing to pay that cost? The last one I want to really talk about, and this is really extreme, but this is a reality in my opinion. Are you willing to be persecuted by the world? Are you? Because we live in a society where good is now bad and bad is now good. And I legitimately believe that there could be a day where Christians in every country are persecuted. It doesn't matter if you're in the United States, if you're in wherever you are, there could be a day where every single Christian is persecuted for being a follower of Christ. Are you willing to pay that cost? So, have you accurately figured the cost of following Christ or not? Do you think, or will you be able to build yourself up in your walk with Christ completely? Or do you think about halfway through, you're going to end up having to abandon that walk because you didn't accurately consider the cost? Like I said at the beginning, following Christ is not something to be taken lightly. And I feel like that's the problem with the church as a whole, not specifically our church, but the church as a whole is we talk about the next generation and we reach out to the youth and that's great. But a lot of the times we're not telling them the the severity of the decision it is to follow Christ. We're just telling them, come to church, like worship, loud music, free stuff. Awesome. Yeah. But we don't tell them, hey, this is part of being a Christian, but there's some real work that goes into this as well. And we don't, if we don't tell the next generation about this, if we don't prepare them for that, we're going to be in trouble as Christians. And that's why I'm so passionate about youth ministry, because we need to let them know you need to count the cost before you decide to walk with God. Don't just say you're going to do it if you're not going to follow through. Accurately count the cost. Know what it is going to cost you, not six months from now, not a year from now, but 60, 70, 80 years from now when you're still walking the earth, did you count the cost for your entire life? What is it going to cost you to walk with God? Because if you don't count the cost, it's going to be 10 years from now, and you're going to be in a situation where God calls you to something, but you're afraid to do it because you didn't see this. This wasn't the count that you foresaw appearing. So did you accurately count the cost? Are you willing to give up everything? Are you going to give up everything or are you going to give up nothing? So Jesus highlights the cost of being a disciple throughout the Gospels. I mean, just in Luke alone, there are multiple examples. And I'll just read them. You don't have to follow along. Luke 5.11 says, As soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. 16 verses later, Luke 5.27 says, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Nowhere in those verses does it say, as soon as they landed, they left 50% of their money, 10% of their clothes, and they followed him. Levi, the tax collector, got up, left a fraction of his goods, and followed Jesus. They left everything and followed him. Everything. They were all in. They were all in. They weren't in the middle. 
they were all in. And that's the mindset that we need to have. Is there anything in you that you're struggling to give up? And if there is, you need to go to the feet of Christ about that. You need to pray about it because you need to be all in. Eventually, you may think, I'll give up 95%. That's good enough. 95% is good. And then one day that 5% is going to come up and God's going to ask you to give it up and you're not going to want to do it. And then eventually there's going to be some problems for you. So are you all in or not? And I know I'm repeating this, but I'm trying to beat it into your heads, especially you youth kids. I'm trying to beat this into your head. So uh, one of the last points I want to make at the end of the parable, uh, Jesus talks about the salt, the illustration of the salt. So I'll just read it again. Salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? Flavorless salt is good neither for soil nor the manure pile. It's thrown away. Okay. So if you're good salt, if you're truly all in for God, you're more than likely going to be good salt. You're going to have flavor. You're going to be able to be used. Okay. I want to talk about the people in the middle, because if you're, if you're, if you're all in, you're going to be good salt. If you're not in at all, you're just not going to be salt. But if you're, I want to talk about the people that are in the middle. If you're in the middle, you're more than likely going to look like salt. You're going to look like salt. Salt always looks like salt, whether it has flavor or not. It's always going to look like salt. But when it comes time to check your flavor, there's going to be nothing there. And what does it say? I know it's getting a little too real, but if you're flavorless salt, you're thrown away. You're no good for anything. And that's not trying to take shots at anybody. I'm not trying to make anybody feel like they're just a terrible person and they should just leave the church and just never come back. I don't want that to happen. Um, But I do challenge you to question yourself. Do you think that you are flavorless salt? Or do you actually believe that there is saltiness there? And I think if you realize that you're flavorless salt, it's because there's something that you're struggling to give up to God. Are you going to go all in or are you going to be all out? Don't be in the middle. So the last point I want to make, and this is a really cliche question. I'm sure some of you have heard this, um, but I think it summarizes everything that I've said tonight. If you were on trial for being a Christian, you're standing before a judge and a jury, and you're charged with being a Christian, would they have enough evidence to convict you? If you were on trial for being a Christian, would they have enough evidence to convict you? Will the judge and the jury say, yeah, oh yeah, they followed Christ. Oh yeah, there's tons of evidence here. They're guilty. They're a Christian. Or would they say, they look like a Christian, but they were cussing. Uh, they weren't helping those that needed help. They weren't doing this. They weren't doing that. No, they're definitely not a Christian. And you may try to fight it, but at the end of the day, is there enough evidence to convict you on being a Christian? Do you have flavor? Are you good salt or are you bad salt? Are you all in or are you all out? Is there something that you need to give up before you can truly say that you are all in for God? So I just want to end by challenging you guys. If there's any of you that feel as though you are lacking something, there's something that you can't give up that you're struggling with, I encourage you to go to your prayer room to be in a season of prayer about that. Because the times are serious, people. We all, well, there's no time to mess around. We got to be all in. We can't be middle-of-the-road Christians that the world can look at and say, see, that's a supposed Christian. But look at them. They're not following Christ. They're a hypocrite. And you hear that a lot because there are a lot of Christians that are out there supporting non-Christian things. But they say, oh, I'm, I'm, the, I'm Christian number one. I'm on Jesus' number one roster slot. I'm number one Christian. And that's the reality. So are you all in or are you all out? And that is all that I have to say. So thank you very much. No, you're good. That's good. Um, 
By the way, that jury thing is a really, really poignant analogy for me today. I am a pro because to expand a little bit, if you were on, it would be a criminal trial, if you will, follow me here. You would have to be proven without uh, reasonable doubt, right? Which I may learn firsthand soon, <laughs> but that's an eye-opening thing in my life. If I were on trial for being a Christian, that's the crime. Would I be unanimously decided by the 12 that I am guilty of, in this case, a good thing, but a bad, the bad thing of being a Christian. Could there be enough evidence placed on the stand to make unbelievers mixed with believers mixed with whoever know that I am a follower of Jesus? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe it's just at my house and not at my workplace. Maybe it's just at my church and not in the supermarket. Maybe some of those people don't know me, but maybe some of them do. But it's a unanimous decision that makes that person guilty. Otherwise, I walk a free man being a saltless piece of salt that goes back into the world and brings no flavor to anyone that I meet that does more harm than the one that's not even the salt at all. The salt, the not salt, when it's put on something, is not expected to make it flavorful. But a piece of salt that has no flavor, when thrown into the world, is expected to make, by both the other salties and the not salts, it's expected to make it salty. And when it doesn't, it paints a poor and false picture of what the salt actually is and does. And so it skews the world's view of what the people of God and the kingdom actually should be doing and looking like 